0: I assume you do that just because you need a little exercise and uh, but I I'm glad to have been here for that moment. I am astounded to realize that we have never done this before at least during my era and the college will be 60 years old next spring 1927 to 1987. I want it understood that I was not here at the founding of the college. <laughs> it was 34 years old when we landed in 1959. So most, uh, slightly over half of the history of the college transpired before we landed. And I hope that will be very clear. But today, in endeavoring to give you a bird's eye view of things, I have the subject, The First Fifty-Eight Years of Los Angeles Baptist College, which was of course the name, Through Fifty-Eight Years. So I'm taking that title, The First Fifty-Eight Years of Los Angeles Baptist College. And then Dr. Stead will pick that up in that same era, that last year, which will be much more interesting, I'm sure, because it brings it into the focus with your life. And then Mr. Provost, on Thursday, will be speaking of last year. So his assignment is year 59 of the 60 years. I trust that you have that in mind. I'm going to follow sort of a question and answer procedure. And the first question I'm going to ask, why was the school founded? That becomes the question, and that really is fundamentally your understanding of things it was to provide a biblical education that was the phraseology we used a biblical education for young people from fundamental Baptist churches now there were always others who were of like precious faith but that was the language which was used and those were the people to whom it was beamed so it was that idea here were fundamental Baptist churches with their young people looking for a place for their higher education. It was primarily for the training of of pastors and missionaries. That was the way they were thinking back in 1927, and that was their concern. But the question, why was it necessary to found such a school? We have to address that. There were other schools. There were other fundamental schools, most of them in the East and midwest but out here in the west we were being affected by what was called the modernist fundamentalist controversy and that was an enormous issue and it's hard to go back to that to really bring your mind into focus here because they did something for us that has really blessed us and allowed us freedom from the damage and influence Of liberalism such was not the case back in the twenties and for the earlier 50 years let me go back to Charles Darwin for instance he he was born in 1809 he was 22 years of age when he began the voyage of the Beagle and he was on that voyage for five years so that he was just 27 years of age when he arrived home and began to publicize his so-called findings supporting the view of of evolution. And in due time, he of course wrote the origin of the species by means of natural selection. Now remember, we're back there about about 1850. Probably you don't know the name Julius Wellhausen but Julius Wellhausen was born in 1844 and he began to teach in university at the date of 1870 within twelve years he was dismissed and had to seek another university post because of his anti-supernaturalist views and especially his attack on the word of God and on the Pentateuch and he's the man who is identified as the founder of the documentary theory. Probably didn't found it because Satan has always had his representatives, but he pretty well manufactured that, organized it, and he, and presented it. And we were back there in 1882. In other words, the university professors and seminarians that used to go to the continent and especially germany for their higher education their graduate or post uh, doctoral work even they had had about fifty or if you take in darwin at least seventy years of being in of having the documentary hypothesis and other liberal doctrines uh, inculcated in their thinking so here is america reeling Really in trouble, divided all over the place because of the impact of liberalism and particularly in the old line denominations, the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Churches, and the Church of the Brethren, other churches that in due time had to split, had to divide. And that was going on. The churches were fighting for their lives the fundamentalists as they became known were were paying a terrific price and they didn't have the best representation they had been the soul winning people they had been the Bible conference people but they had not had the respect academically that was common in other circles and so they were despised and of course the great sermon that Harry Emerson Fosdick of the Riverside Church in New York preached was Shall the fundamentalists win? And the idea was we are committed to the proposition that they will not win, that Orthodox Christianity has to be abandoned, that we will not stand for this literal biblical ministry that is abroad under the name of fundamentalism. Alright, when we come to our situation here in Los Angeles, there were three earnest godly Baptist preachers who over a period of time with their associates began to pray that God would give them a school that he would raise up a school for the constituency that they represented and that was in such turmoil because they had churches where one church uh, one Northern Baptist Church would have a liberal preacher and then another would have a fundamental preacher and there was there was a bitter debate of course to the, uh, to the liberal crowd, this is a matter of looking down our nose. This is ridiculous to put up with these, these old fogies. And to the fundamentalists, to those who love the word of God, this is our life. Are we going to believe God? Are we going to preach the gospel? So it was a, a life and death struggle. To illustrate that, let me read the theological schools in the West in the whole of the West that were listed by the Department of Education. Here they are back in that time. There is the Berkeley Baptist Divinity School in Berkeley, California, which was Northern Baptist, avowedly liberal. There was the church, there is, by the way, these are largely a cluster of schools in Berkeley. There is the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley, California, which was Episcopal and is Episcopal. The Iliff School of Theology, which is Methodist, in Denver, Colorado. The Pacific School of Religion, avowedly liberal, in Berkeley, California, interdenominational. There is the San Francisco Theological Seminary in San Anselmo, in Marin County, that some of you know of, Presbyterian, avowedly liberal. The Star King School for the Ministry, in Berkeley, California, Unitarian, obviously avowedly liberal. There is the University of Southern California School of Religion, Los Angeles, California, Methodist, a validly liberal, and then there is the Los Angeles Baptist Theological Seminary, Los Angeles, California, independent Baptist, and obviously a validly fundamentalist. Praise God for that. But that's where we were, and that's where we came from, and that's why it is important to us. Now, what were the basic convictions of the founders of LABC? What were the doctrines that really stood out? What were the points to which they gave special emphasis? Let's see whether Dr. MacArthur would really belong in this crowd. The first doctrine that they were confronted with and that they fought for was the the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. We are, we're using the language inerrancy today. That was the way they said the same thing. I think Dr. MacArthur would pass on that, would he not? They believe with all of their heart in salvation by faith, the preaching of the gospel, rather than by salvation, by education and social uplift. Dr. MacArthur obviously would pass on that. They believe with all of their hearts in separation from all anti supernaturalists, from any who deny the miracle working power of God in His, as taught in the Word of God. Obviously, Dr. MacArthur would pass there. And then they were premillennial. That is, the founders of this college were premillennial. They loved the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Dr. MacArthur obviously would be welcome there, wouldn't he? So apparently we can go on without too much compromise. We have not really done much damage, have we, in having a new president? They also stood for godliness, personal piety. Now, the first president was a man named Dr. William Matthews. And he had two great preachers with him one from Pasadena named Dr. Farr one from down at the Calvary Baptist Church in Los Angeles named Dr. Fellman. My connections there are very, very scanty. As I say, I'm, I had to look back here, and by the way, Mr. Gruss and Mr. Price and Mr. Hotchkiss would be better able to do some of this than I am able to do because they, they took their studies before my time, that is the first two did, And so they would know the downtown scene. But this man, Farr, Dr. Farr, a godly pastor. Let me give you just a few excerpts from quotations that were retained by those who heard him. He said this. There is a difference between an evil thought and a thought of evil. Anyone may have a thought of evil at any time. It becomes an evil thought only when cherished in the mind. That's good, isn't it? Then he said, if you go into a preacher's study and find a bare spot on the carpet in front of his chair, get him to pray for you. If you find the bare spot is in front of his mirror, you pray for him. Rather perceptive. And then he said this, listen, a saint is not free from sin. That is his burden. A saint is not free to sin. That is his blessing. Sin is in him. That is his lamentation. His soul is not in sin. That is his consolation. Just a little touch of the kind of people that were involved in the founding of the school. It's no wonder that they took... As the model, the biblical scriptural model for the school, Revelation 1 9, for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I think that John meant by that that he was on the Isle of Patmos for affirming the Word of God as the Word of God and for Declaring the testimony of Jesus Christ. Certainly that's what is generally understood by God's people since that day. Now, with whom did the school fellowship? This will be interesting to us. It's very interesting to me because during my administration, the the brethren in the GARBC, whom I love, were always a little skeptical about my breadth of fellowship they they were not sure that I was totally loyal and they had some reason for that but I don't think it was really adequate anyway this is what was written way back in December 1947 I wish I'd known this 10 years ago but anyway this is what was written by Dr. Fish the dean of the school at that time he said this we invite the independent fundamental fellowship which became, I believe, the IFCA. He said, we invite the Independent Fundamental Fellowship and unaffiliated Baptistic churches of whatever name in California to set a pattern to those in other states by standing together in fellowship and prayer. The spiritual union of these with the GARBC churches is possible because of our common precious faith. It is necessary to maintain an effective protest against the infiltration of apostasy. It is essential to thus implement our God-given determination that this 20th century Reformation shall triumph. So you ask, is there really any difference in fellowship today than there was in that earlier day? Not really, not fundamentally. It was those who first of all believed that the Bible is the word of God and who loved people who stood with us in that basic understanding of the gospel. Granted, the school was moderately Calvinistic, and it still is. But that was within the the range of truth that those different fellowships espoused. Now, my friend, Joel... Miller and I are teaming up for a few slides to help you see this visually. I'm not sure how this is going to go, but we're going to turn the lights out, if you promise to behave, and we're going to proceed from there. All right.
1: Uh, thank you, Dr. Duncan. That was a really a, just a tremendous uh, opportunity for all of us to get a grasp on where the college has been, and I hope, you know, one of the most difficult things for young people to get in the 20th century, I really believe, is a sense of history. Uh, most people today in this country are what I call apolitical in every area. That is, they've divorced, the, they've divorced their past from the present, and because they've divorced the past from the present, they have no understanding of the future. And so I just hope you really take very seriously the great heritage that you have inherited as you come here as students. In the fall of 1984, Dr. Duncan, as he just said, announced to the board of directors that after 26 years, he was going to step down as president. And uh, this announcement came simultaneously with the site visit of the Western Association of Schools and Colleges for the reaffirmation of our accreditation, which is very important to this institution. Uh, Let me just give you a brief history as to what had transpired just in those few years prior to Dr. Duncan's resignation. From about 1975 until 1981, there had been very gradual but sustained growth here at the institution, about 8 to 10 percent a year. In 1979, we peaked with an enrollment of about 390 students. In 1981, we had about 377 students. However, as most of you maybe remember, in 1982, the country went through a very serious recession. And we went in one year from 377 students down to 304. Now, when you translate that into budget and all the needs of the college, that was a very significant drop for the institution. And throughout this period, however, under Dr. Duncan's leadership, the college was able to sustain the program. That is, in spite of that tremendous cutback in terms of revenue, we did not release any faculty. We did not cut back in any of our programs. However, there was a high cost associated with that, and that was that we had to, to borrow extensively in the short term in order to keep the institution moving ahead. And so because of this numerical decrease and also the numerical decrease in the constituency that supported the college in terms of sending us students, we faced a very, very serious problem in 1984. And I was very frustrated at this time because having served as as dean for some six or seven years and being on the faculty since 1970, I had the opportunity to visit with deans of Biola and Azusa and Point Loma and the Sister Evangelical School of Southern California. And I was absolutely convinced that even though we were the smallest of all those schools, the depth of our programs here and the commitment and qualifications and quality of our faculty were every bit as good as any of those particular institutions. And, in fact, we had something that a lot of those institutions lacked, a lot of those institutions lacked, and that was a real singularity of purpose among the faculty and even among the students. And so I was very, 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 very frustrated during this particular time because I just really felt we had an awful lot to offer. And yet we're unable to move ahead and to get the word out concerning the type of program that we had here at this institution. And we seem to just work and work and work and work at it. And yet the results in an increased student body just never really seemed to appear. And at this time also I was very concerned for a personal reason because I had under- I really understood probably better than anybody else on this faculty the tremendous commitment that Dr. Duncan had made in order to get this school to move ahead. And I just saw 25 years of work really coming to a point where there just had to be a major change of some kind to get this college into a whole different league, if you might say, in terms of potential. And as this whole process took place, I began to think that the college had reached one of those crucial times in its own history. Being a history student in many ways, I am convinced, and one could look at history and see this, that whether it's in a national situation or in a personal situation, there are certain times in one's life or in the life of a country or of a community where major decisions have to be made. And if the right decision isn't made, or if by that fact a decision is not made, by the very fact you don't make a decision, has the effect of being a decision. And I really felt we had we had reached that particular crossroads as an institution. And a particular uh, series of words from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, from the third act, kept coming into my mind. And they're very familiar words, and it says this and it was Brutus speaking to Cassius and the words go like this, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken up the flood leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in misery. That is a very perceptive statement on the part of Shakespeare and is absolutely correct. And that's exactly where I believe the college was. I believed in my own heart that it would only be a short period of time after Dr. Duncan resigned that the college would continue to struggle and to struggle and to struggle and eventually go out of business. I believe that with all my heart. And I also, because I'm a premillennialist and a dispensationalist, I also believe that we go through periods that are called epics. Different periods of life. And I saw the college really moving from a particular period into a new period. And so I really believe with all my heart that there needed to be a bold move in a new direction while at the same time ensuring the doctrinal position of the college that Dr. Duncan already talked about. Well, the first step for me to play a major role in this process took place when the board of directors appointed Ed Gruss and myself to serve on the search committee of the board of directors to find a new president. And even at this time, I already believed in my spirit that Dr. MacArthur was God's man for this particular school. Now, the issue is, how do you pull that off? How do you take a man who is at Grace Community Church, which is an interdenominational church? How do you get the board of directors who are all Baptists, OK, how do you get the constituency that are basically all Baptists? How do you get them to accept this man? As president. And so it's not as easy as it might seem. And in reality, this whole thing, as Dr. MacArthur will probably talk about tomorrow, was one series of miracles after another. And by the way, I believe that at any one point, if God had shut the door, I would have backed totally away from what I was trying to do. Now, John was the logical person for a number of reasons in my own mind. Number one, Grace had supported this this school for years, especially in the sending of students to this institution. In the last five years prior to him coming, Grace Church was the number one church in terms of sending young people to Los Angeles Baptist College. I believe John's doctrinal position tied with the college. I believe that John's national ministry would really help the college in getting the word out as to the quality of the program here at the college. His vitality and vision, his godliness, all these kinds of things I felt were absolutely crucial. And the most important thing of all, and this might seem like a very little thing to you, was that in driving to Grace Church, John had to drive by the campus every day. So it was a very logical thing Therefore it would not really strain him from the standpoint of the time commitment because the school was located so closely to his own home and so all these things kind of came up to my mind now the issue is how do you begin to work with that how do you begin to sow the seed well first of all it was very interesting on November 15th we were playing a basketball game in this gym and it was a very stormy night and there was a blackout all the lights went out and so the game was cancelled and as John was coming out of the parking lot, I happened to see him, and I, I went up to him. And by the way, you need to understand that he and I, he said this before, and I don't like to belabor this point because it gets old, but he and I have been very close friends ever since we were both 15 years of age. And so it's not just that I just decided to do this. We'd always maintained a very close relationship, even though, even though uh, I was not attending at Grace Church during the time I was here at the college. But that did had nothing to do with our friendship. So anyway, I went up to him and I asked him, I said, can we have breakfast? And he said, when? I said, well, how about tomorrow morning? And so we met down at the horseless carriage. You know where Galpin Ford is? I'd like to bronze the booth down there, okay? But it's the last, I can even remember, it's the last booth right up against the door. And we met for breakfast and uh, I said, John, listen, I'm speaking only for myself at this point. I said, would you be interested in being considered for the presidency of the college? and these were his exact words and he didn't even pause he said let's put it this way I'm not disinterested Okay, I'm not disinterested well, obviously the green flag went up immediately so I, I moved to the next step which was well what's the process involved and I asked him for permission to call the chairman of our board just as an individual member of the search committee and he gave me that permission now at this time Dr. Duncan knows nothing Okay, he's totally in the dark. Everybody's in the dark. I call Jerry Smith, and I begin to go through this whole scenario, and there's this long pause on the phone. And I get the same response. Well, he's not a Baptist. I said, Jerry, will you do one thing? I said, will you get on a plane? Will you fly out here? Will you meet with him? And after a long pause, Mr. Smith said he would do that. And so Jerry came out, and by the way, the search committee was still doing all of its duty during this time. And there were a couple of people within the fellowship that I honestly felt could have made a fairly decent president. But the problem was after the first couple, and obviously you, you've got a huge debt and everything else, and these people are successful, and, and the idea of them coming here was very remote, and they obviously turned down our overtures almost immediately. And, and, and the drop from those men to the next echelon was absolutely incredible. I mean, there was no comparison. And so I just sensed the Lord still moving in this thing. And so Jerry flew out, and it was a tremendous meeting. He was just totally excited about what the, about what the potential was. And so he went back, and we talked again on the phone. Now the issue is, how do you bring the search committee together on this, on this whole subject? Well, it was really interesting. We, we were doing all this by conference calls, okay? And I can remember, it was one morning, there was a conference call. And all these names went down. No, 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 no. All everybody was not interested. Nobody was interested in coming to a school where they'd have to immediately raise money. Okay. And so uh, all of a sudden, Darrell Beto, who was on our board, Pastor Beto from Boise, Idaho, said, Out of a clear blue sky, has anybody contacted or asked John MacArthur if he'd be interested? Big pause on the phone. Nobody's saying a word. I can't say anything, right? Jerry Smith can't say anything. And as I recall, Dr. Duncan said, well, I don't think anybody's contacted him. And so, Dr. Duncan, I think, I kind of sensed in my mind at this point that he was going to do that. And so, I got right over to the college, and he was in his office. And I went in there, and I said, sit down. (laughs) Okay, I got to tell you something. And I unfolded this whole story between that Jerry and I had been putting together for the last four or five weeks. And he was like... Really, his jaw just dropped, and he couldn't believe it, because he really believed in his heart that John would never be interested in this kind of a ministry because what he was already involved in was so large and so diverse and, and, and just required so much of his time. Well, knowing Dr. Duncan as I know him, the minute I said that, he was on the phone to John MacArthur, and he said, May I meet with you in about 20 minutes? And lo and behold, he got into his car, and he drove down there, and... From that point in time, things really began to steamroller. We then met with our own search committee out at the Ranch House Inn. And John came in and talked with us for about three hours, and we had a great time of sharing. We ended up with all of us on our knees, really praying for God's direction in this matter. And then it was really interesting. The vote was taken. and you've got to remember, there were five regular Baptist pastors on that search committee. And the vote, as I recall was eight to nothing with one abstention to present John's name, or Dr. MacArthur's name, to the whole board. And that happened at the February board meeting in 1985. And uh, it was really interesting. I was at a conference in in Tucson, Arizona. And I can recall calling my wife that night because I knew it was going to come up, and she said they didn't settle anything. And I was just practically beside myself. I I just got down on my knees beside my bed and I just began to pray as I'd never prayed before. And really it wasn't so much that God's will would be done because I knew it would be, but I just wanted to make sure that where I was, that I was where God wanted me to be. And so anyway, the the upshot of it was the board voted unanimously with with three abstentions to call Dr. MacArthur as president of the Master's College. Now you have to understand, that might be very... If you understand the politics, and if you understand the history of this institution, that is an absolute miracle that that could ever happen. And the point I want you to see is, is that there were a number of places all the way along where all it would have taken would have been one negative response. One negative response, and the whole issue would have been settled. And that just impressed to me once again that this was truly in the sovereignty of God. And that God worked this thing out and had it all obviously before the foundation of the world. And step by step by step by step brought the whole thing into focus. And so really it was a very exciting three months. Just to, to be a part of something that seemed so remote in October. And yet, by the following March, had absolutely become reality. And the point that I want to leave you with here simply is that, you know, so often we fail to understand that God is not only sovereign, but God is powerful. And God does many miracles. And some of the greatest miracles he does is in his timing and in literally in the changing of people's minds and spirits. ...in order to bring about unity so that his purpose can be accomplished. So in a nutshell, that's how Dr. MacArthur became president of the Master's College... ...and was inaugurated in, on September, I believe, September 6th of 1985. And I believe tomorrow John will give you his personal testimony... ...as to his feelings on this whole subject and, and share with you a little more about his vision concerning the future of this institution.